when we did not, when we could not initiate our own rescue, God did. Our salvation is the result of a divine initiative. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom has part nine of a series titled, This Is Your Life. Today we come to the second part of Ephesians chapter two, verses one through 10. You discover all that God has done for humanity. The Apostle Paul makes it clear that we all are born separated from Christ without hope. The fact is, aside from Christ, you would have no hope. You would be in a situation from which you could not rescue yourself. All that would await you is his punishment for sin. But God, into the hopelessness of your situation, into the darkness of your soul, into the bleakness of your spiritual condition, spoke the two most wonderful and powerful words in every language. Again, but God. How do those words impact your life today? Let's join our teacher for more on The Word Unleashed. It occurred to me this week that on a personal level, having experienced myself what it means to be physically rescued in that sense, to be rescued from death, I think I have a more profound appreciation for what it means to be rescued at the spiritual level. I have a point of reference, a point of contact. But fortunately, even if you don't have such a point of contact, if you've never been physically rescued, because you have, if you're a believer, the gift of the Spirit, He can illumine your understanding so that you can understand it even better than if you had physically experienced it. For several weeks, we've been studying Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. I've told you that this is, in a sense, every Christian's autobiography, every Christian's story. It describes how God, by an act of sovereign grace, brought us out of spiritual death into life. He rescued us spiritually. And throughout this entire paragraph here, there is only one message that Paul wants us to get, and that is that salvation, spiritual rescue, is of God from beginning to end. He tells us the story, if you will, our story, by beginning with what we were. We've looked at it in great detail in the first three verses. What we were when Christ found us. Our true condition, we were dead, verse 1 tells us. The root cause of that, by reason of our trespasses and sins. Verse 2 tells us the practical results. We walked according to, or we walked, we lived in step with three powerful forces in our lives. The world, verse 2 tells us, we walked according to the course of this world, that is, in lockstep with the mindset of the age in which we lived. We walked according to the devil, verse 2 adds, that is, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And verse 3 tells us, we also walked in lockstep with a third powerful force, the flesh. 
We too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. As a result of our true condition, as a result of our, the root cause, our trespasses and sins, as a result of the practical effects of that in our lives, the slavery that we were in, verse 3, the very last part of verse 3, tells us God's perspective of us. We were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That was who we were. That is the biography of every person under the sound of my voice this morning. It is either still your biography, or if you're a Christian, it is true of you before Christ. Every single person, without exception, can be described by those three verses. Paul wants us to see, he wants us to get it, as he wanted the Ephesians to get it, that our spiritual circumstances, when Christ found us, were utterly hopeless. If we were going to rescue ourselves from the mess in which we found ourselves, the mess we ourselves had made, if we were going to rescue ourselves, we would have had to do a number of things. We would have had to raise ourselves from spiritual death. We would have had to erase a lifetime record of sins and trespasses. In the words of Nicodemus, we'd have had to go back into our mother's womb and be born and start life all over again. We would have had to free ourselves from slavery to the world, the devil, and the flesh. And even if we could have done all of that, there would have still been one huge insurmountable obstacle. A, an Atlantic Ocean we could never swim. A Grand Canyon we could never cross. An Everest we could never climb. Because to help ourselves or to rescue ourselves, we would have had to satisfy the wrath of God against our sin. And even if that were possible, even if all of those things were possible, all of that would still just get us back to sea level, back to the ground floor, because what is God's standard? Perfection. So if we had the power in and of ourselves to obliterate our past, to start our lives over, to reconcile ourselves to God, to make ourselves acceptable to God, we would still need from that moment forward to live absolutely perfectly. We would have to live every moment loving God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. We would have to live every moment loving others as we love ourselves. No wonder Paul says down in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, that we were separate from Christ, having no hope. We had no hope. We were in a situation from which we could not rescue ourselves. All we could expect was an eternity of wrath. But bless God into the hopelessness of our situation, into the darkness of our souls, into the bleakness of our spiritual condition, God spoke the two most wonderful and powerful words in every language, the two words that begin verse 4, but God. But God. Today we come to the second part of this great paragraph. We've looked at what we were in the first three verses but in verses 4 through 6, we get to look at what God did. 
This new section begins with what John Stott calls a mighty adversative. The little word, but, in English. In the Greek text, the word for but is a tiny two-letter word. But these two Greek letters introduce us to the wonderful news of the gospel, the wonderful news of hope, the wonderful news of divine grace. The word but marks a contrast between our past and our present. It marks a contrast between our past and our future. Those are all the things we were, but God. John Stott says these two monosyllables, but God, set against the desperate condition of fallen mankind, the gracious initiative and sovereign action of God. Thus, God has taken action to reverse our condition in sin. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his commentary on Ephesians 2, says these two words, but God, in and of themselves, in a sense, contain the whole of the gospel. Think about that for a moment. The gospel is in those two words, but God. The contrast between Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and the first two words of verse 4 is like the contrast between darkness and light, between white and black, between heaven and hell, between God and man, between Satan and angels, between life and death. In Ephesians 2, Paul has taken us into the past to look at what we were. And if we're honest with ourselves, as we've looked at it over the last few weeks, it is an ugly, disgusting portrait, but an accurate one. But with the beginning of verse 4, Paul reminds us of how we came to be so different today. But God. Now let me warn you that we won't get any further than those two words today. Because those two little words teach us several immense lessons about our salvation. Several immense lessons. And I want us to look at them together in preparation for the Lord's table. The first lesson those two words teach us is that salvation is a divine initiative. It's a divine initiative. In these two words, we have God taking the initiative to reconcile sinful man to himself. That is the heart of the gospel. God taking the initiative in salvation and it is found throughout the word of God. If you could rewind the tape all the way back to the very beginning in the garden, what happened when Adam and Eve sinned? They went and hid themselves from God. But the text tells us in Genesis 3 that the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who would one day shed his own blood for them, came seeking them in the cool of the day and found them. God has always taken the initiative to bring man to himself. You see it throughout the Old Testament, and you see it in vivid, living color in the New Testament. It is absolutely filled with this reality. In fact, Jesus often declared that he came to seek and to save the lost. After the encounter with Zacchaeus, you remember in Luke 19 that we saw several weeks ago when Dr. Hughes was here, you remember how Jesus finishes that account? How Luke, the writer, gives us insight into Jesus and his mission? He says, the Son of Man has come, this is why he came, to seek 
and to save that which was lost. Jesus Christ was here on a divine rescue mission. He came to seek, that is to pursue, and to save, to rescue. One of my favorite passages, and I wish we had time to turn there, but we really don't. Let me just remind you of it. In Luke chapter 15, you have three great parables Jesus tells, and each of those parables is a picture of Christ seeking the lost, seeking lost people. The first parable, you remember, is the woman who loses a coin. It's a very valuable coin to her. She's in poverty, and she finds that coin, and when she finds it, she rejoices, and her friends rejoice with her, and Jesus says, in the same way, there is rejoicing in heaven over one lost sinner who repents. God rejoices when a sinner is found, when a sinner is rescued. The second parable is the parable of the man who lost his sheep. You remember, and he loses the sheep, and he goes and looks for the sheep, and he finds it, brings it back, and when he comes back, he throws a party, and his friends come, and he rejoices, and Jesus says, that's how it is in heaven. There's a party, if you will, every time a sinner repents. And then the third one is probably the most familiar to us, it's the parable of the father with two lost sons. We call it the parable of the prodigal son, but both sons are lost. There are two sons. Both of them are lost. There's the prodigal son with whom we're, both, with whom we're most familiar. He's the one who absolutely rebels against the father, walks away, takes what's his, goes to the distant Gentile country and squanders everything and ends up at the very bottom of life. Jesus says... That son pictures sinners and tax gatherers and the worst of society who absolutely spend themselves pursuing their sin. But the elder son was every bit as much lost. He stayed at home, but he hated his father. He resented his father. He had no relationship to his father. And the father comes out from the party celebrating the return of the prodigal to seek that son as well. You see, all of us fall into one of those two categories. We're either the worst of sinners pursuing our sin at full pace, or we're the Pharisees, we're the self-righteous, the religious, who think that somehow we can please God. And the picture of that parable is Jesus pursuing them both. In that parable, the Father represents Christ, and Christ seeking the lost, and heaven rejoicing when He finds them. Today, God is still seeking the lost. He does so through the gospel message. When the gospel is preached, God is in that message seeking and pursuing sinners. This is what Paul said. Turn over to 2 Corinthians. Just a few pages over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is one of my favorite passages, as you know. And in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18... Paul says, I have been given the ministry of reconciliation. God, verse 19, was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, because we have this message that we've been given, it's like we're ambassadors for Christ. And it's as though God himself were appealing through us. When we preach the gospel, Paul says, it's as if God is seeking the lost through our message. He's appealing 
We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. What is the message he preached? Verse 21, it's the message of justification. God made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God seeking and saving through the gospel message today, he's still seeking sinners. He's still the one initiating. Now this is so important to get because we have a misperception about salvation. When we think about salvation, and I mean that word salvation in the sense of spiritual rescue. When we think about salvation, our minds typically picture somebody like this. This is the picture that comes in our minds. There is someone who is on the deck of a ship and in the midst of a storm accidentally falls overboard. And this person finds himself treading water in a huge ocean in the middle of this raging storm. He really has no hope. His only hope is for God, the pilot of the ship, if you will, to throw him a life preserver. And in our perception, God does. He throws him a life preserver. And the sinner sees the life preserver hit the water a distance away, and he flails and fights and claws himself to the life preserver, and he locks his arm around it, and then God draws him in on the rope to the boat and hauls him to safety. Folks, that is not an accurate, an accurate picture of biblical salvation. The truth is more like this. Picture the same analogy. You have a man on a ship. He hates the captain of the ship. He hates the rules that have been laid down for him. And he reaches a point at which he wants nothing more than to be done with the captain. And so he jumps overboard in a rebellious moment that is part of his heart, and he fights and claws his way as far away from the ship as he can get. And then he finds himself dead. He dies in the middle of his exit. He has no life. In, floating hopelessly in the storm, caught at sea, already dead. He has no ability to see his rescuer. He cannot fight his way to the life preserver. He has no strength to lock his arms around the truth that will rescue him. Instead, he is sinking hopelessly without the slightest ability to aid in his own rescue in any way. In fact, he is completely unaware that he's even in danger. He doesn't even know he needs rescue. That is what we were like when God found us. That's why the most beautiful words in the world to you as a Christian should be those little words, but God. When we did not, when we could not initiate our own rescue, God did. Our salvation is the result of a divine initiative, but God. There's a second immense lesson in those two little words. Salvation is a sovereign act. Salvation is a sovereign act. In the first three verses, we were the ones acting. We were the ones doing. And every time we acted in those first three verses, it's as if we forged another link in the chains that bound us. But beginning in verse 4, God steps in. In fact, as I've told you before, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 are a single sentence in the Greek text. One sentence. 
in verses one through three, there is no subject. We haven't met the subject of the sentence yet. We don't get to the subject of the sentence, the doer of the action, until we get to verse four, and it's the word God. God is the subject of the entire sentence. God is the sole subject of the entire sentence. God, verse five says, made us alive. Verse six, and raised us up and seated us with Christ. So God is the actor. He acts alone. This is what we've been seeing from this passage, that salvation, spiritual rescue, is from beginning to end an act of God. Now this is very important because there are very flawed and inadequate views of salvation that see man as somehow contributing. In fact, let me give you the four basic views of how man is spiritually rescued. The first three are wrong, flawed, but let me give them to you. Number one, man doesn't need to be rescued. The first view says, man's in no trouble. He's essentially good, and they sort of take this picture that at the end of life, we're going to stand before God, if they believe in God at all, and there God is going to weigh our good deeds and our bad deeds, and yeah, we've got some bad deeds, but overall, we're good people, and our good deeds are going to outweigh our bad deeds, and so we don't need rescue. All we need is to get to the judgment, and God will see what wonderful people we are. The second flawed view says that man does need spiritual rescue, but man is solely responsible for his own rescue. This view would say, yes, I realize that I've blown it, that I've messed up royally, that I really don't deserve heaven, but... I can rescue myself from the situation in which I find myself. I'll work hard, and I'll try to be a better person, and I'll do good things, and I'll be generous with people, and and I'll volunteer for various activities in the community. I'll do a lot of different things, some of them perhaps in the Bible. This is salvation by human works and human merit. A third flawed view says that man needs to be spiritually rescued, but, and, and man doesn't, isn't solely responsible for his rescue, but man cooperates with God to accomplish his rescue. This view is called synergism. It comes from two Greek words, syn, meaning, S-Y-N, meaning together, and erg, which is a unit of work, means to work. So, working together. Synergism is working together. Neither God can accomplish salvation alone, nor can man accomplish it alone. So they have to work together. And if they work together, if God does his part and I do my part, then we meet somewhere in the middle and I'm going to be spiritually rescued. The fourth view is the biblical view. And it's that God alone can spiritually rescue man. Theologians call it monergism. Mono meaning one, erg meaning work. One working. Only one working. God alone works to effect man's spiritual rescue. That's the significance of those two little words, but God. This passage makes it clear that God's sovereign act alone accomplishes our salvation. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part nine of his series, This Is Your Life. Tom will bring you part 10 next time, and we do hope you'll join us then. 
Well, Tom, the gospel is the best, most miraculous news in history, isn't it? That is absolutely right. There is no other truth that can save us from our sins and put us in right relationship with God. There is nothing greater than the gospel of Jesus Christ. But don't miss the fact that we must respond to that message. You know, the gospel is in one sense an announcement that God has made of what he has done in Jesus Christ. The gospel is also a command, repent and believe the gospel, Jesus says in Mark 1. And at the same time, the gospel is a gracious invitation. The Bible ends with that wonderful invitation, whoever thirsts, let him come and drink of the water of life freely. And that would be my invitation to you, dear friend. If you've never come to Jesus Christ, you have heard the gospel and he invites you. In fact, he commands you to repent and believe in his son. Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. We also invite you to visit thewordunleashed.org, where you'll find other resources, including additional radio series from The Word Unleashed. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.